Psalm 2. If you go into the middle of your Bible, you should be able to find the book of Psalms. Now, psalm 2 is what we call a royal psalm. It was usually sung at the coronation of a king, uh, a king of Israel. So this is uh, the song that would be sung. Psalm 2, verse 1. Verse 1. <clears throat> Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And our next reading comes from the sermon passage of today, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the second gospel in the New Testament. We're just going to be reading from chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, 
After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word to us. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. And that whenever we open your word, we hear you speak to us. And we pray now that that would happen, uh, that we know that your speaking to us involves us reading and, and listening, but also involves your spirit powerfully at work to open our spiritual eyes and to soften our hearts. And so we pray this morning, as we come before this uh, wonderful new gospel, <clears throat> this new series, uh, that you help us to see Jesus clearly for who he is. And in seeing him each week, we would uh, adore him, we would worship him, we would live our life according to who he is, and that we would experience the, the joy and the meaning and purpose of which you created us to have. So we pray that you really bless us as we begin this new series. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in, uh, in life, there's all kinds of turning points, aren't there? Uh, for us, as personal kind of milestones that we hit. So for some of the year sevens here, there's a big milestone about a, a few weeks ago when they began high school, turning point. Uh, some of you here, and especially in the second service, I think we're having 30-odd newcomers uh, to our international student ministry. A lot of them are, are moving to a new phase of life, right? a milestone, uh, having finished JC or poly or army or whatever it is, and, and moving into university. And some of you here have graduated right, and started into the workforce and, and so on. They're milestones that are personal in life. But there are also kind of more uh, global milestones, aren't there? Uh, we think about the things, uh, the turning points of history. We can think of the world wars, World War I, World War II. Uh, perhaps in more recent times, 9-11. That was a very world-shaping event, wasn't it? Uh, people remember a time before 9-11 and a time after. And how you know, the world stage is different. But perhaps the biggest world-altering event of them all uh, was the coming of Jesus Christ. After all, the whole way we define history is according to Jesus, isn't it? It was before Christ, B.C., and then Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. Right? That's how, whether you, you're a believer or not a believer, that the world has decided that our calendars, our history, will be defined according to this person called Jesus Christ. So whether it is you're a believer or not a believer, it, 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 it's the most important thing to ask, why did humanity, why has humanity chosen to define our history as before Jesus Christ, and after the Lord's coming. Now, for some of you might know, if you're in the, in the know, that they're trying to change B.C., before Christ, to B.C.E., right? Before the Common Era. You know that? But what difference does it make? One B.C., one B.C.E., you're still using Jesus, right? As the starting point, as the zero point, the zeroing of history. Now, when we get into the Gospel of, of Mark, uh, this is one of the four gospel account stories of Jesus, who is arguably the most important person in history. Right? It pays for us to find out more about who this Jesus is. And, and the gospel of Mark is probably, possibly the first gospel written. Right? Matthew, Luke, and John uh, probably came after Mark. Right? He's the one that began this genre. He's the first one to, to write this biography, in a way, of, of Jesus Christ. And the way Mark starts this, this gospel, this, this new book, this, 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 this history-altering event, is with a very simple and very stark title. 
right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's not even a sentence. There's no verb, right? It's just a statement. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, and when you, when you pick this up, and you realize it's a, it's a beginning, it's a, it's, it sounds like the first word of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. It's the same word, just in Hebrew, this is in Greek, right? In Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, when God created everything, that first beginning. And now Mark, in introducing Jesus, tells us about this new beginning. Now, if you go back into your Bibles and if you were to take the time to read, or if you already know your history, you know that God created the world in the beginning. Uh, and then uh, over hundreds and thousands of years, we see the, the worsening decline of humanity. Right? From the first human beings in their sin and their rebellion and rejection of God, things have just gotten worse and worse over the millennia. And even in that space of time, even as God chose a people to belong to himself, right? the, the, the Jews, the people of Israel, and gave them chance after chance to be his chosen people, to be saved and to be redeemed and to be living God's way, the way they were created to. They, they kept falling over and over again, right? We see the history of the Old Testament of humanity as being people forsaking their creator and their king and their savior over and over again. And if you know your Bibles, at the end of the Old Testament, there's about a three, 400-year silence Prior to that, God had kept sending prophets, right, to, to speak to the people, to tell them that there is a God, and that he used to be worshipped, and he wants to save them. But for about 400 years, before Mark 1, verse 1, there has been silence from God. No one has heard a thing from him. Have humanity been deserted by God? And then now, we hear that there is a new beginning. And we wonder, what will this new beginning be about? And how will it change things? Will it be as history-defining as the first beginning when God created the world? Will this new beginning be like a new creation? What will this new beginning be like? Well, Mark doesn't hold us in suspense, right? Straight away he tells us, what is this new beginning about? It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this entire book, this Gospel of Mark, will show us what this Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is about. Now, so important is this title that we're going to go through kind of word by word to understand very clearly what Mark is talking about when he says the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? And we're going to look at that, and then we're going to look at verse 2 to 15, uh, and to see how that is actually one whole unit that, that says pretty much the same thing, to show us how this new beginning actually begins. Now, this new beginning is firstly a gospel, right? This is the first thing that we're told about the beginning. It's of the gospel. Now, many of us as Christians know kind of what the gospel is. But in, in terms of definition, the word gospel simply means a pronouncement, right? A pronouncement is just an announcement that is very official and very uh, uh, powerful, okay? Um, it's like if you were in the first century, a gospel message would have been, uh, Caesar Augustus has risen to the throne, right? Long live Caesar. Right? It's the announcement of Caesar's uh, rise to the throne, right? It's a royal pronouncement. Or it could be like victory, right? Victory, Rome, almighty Rome has conquered the barbarians in Greece. Right? It's a pronouncement that, that someone comes, a messenger comes with the good news, if you're Roman, that is, that a new king has risen to the throne or, or a victory in a battle has been won. A royal announcement, that's what a gospel is. 
Now, of course, this original understanding of the gospel gets taken in, in Mark's story, to show us another, a more important, a history-defining and altering royal pronouncement about this person called Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this gospel is about a man called Jesus. That's what we see, right? The gospel of Jesus. Now, what about Jesus? Well, he is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, it might be a bit embarrassing, but I want you to put your hand up in a small one. If you ever thought that Jesus Christ, that Christ was his surname, who ever thought that Christ was his surname? Okay, yeah, yeah, it's a few of us, right? So it's not that obvious what that means, right? We, we think Jesus Christ, son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ, right? <laughs> oh, Joseph's surname was Joseph Christ. Um, no, that's not what Christ means. Uh, and if you, if you still think that it's his surname, actually it doesn't mean that, right? Christ is a title. Okay, a bit of a language lesson. Uh, because you just need this on a Sunday morning, right? A language lesson. Oh man, the fonts disappeared. Anyway, I'll, I'll fix that for the next service. But you can imagine Christo, comma, J is in Greek. And then X, semicolon, Yavim is uh, in Hebrew. Okay, I'll, I'll change that later on. But Chris, Christ is Greek, right? Messiah is Hebrew. I'll say it better, it's Meshiach. Okay, that's how you say it in Hebrew. And they all mean the same thing. In English, it means anointed one. Very important. Whenever you see the word Christ, or you hear the word Messiah, or you look at the anointed one in the Old Testament, they, they almost always refer to the king. Okay, the anointed one can mean priest as well, but it almost always usually means king. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, we see this, okay? The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed, right, of his Messiah, of his, of his Christ. Then Psalm 18:50, same thing. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast to his anointed. This is God's anointed. To David and his offspring forever. Can you see that? King anointed, Messiah Christ. So that's what Christ means, right? Jesus, this anointed king of God. Now what about son of God? What about son of God? Now, Son of God, oftentimes we think of the divine second person of the Trinity, right? God's, you know, uh, uh, godly son. And, and yes, uh, the Son of God can mean that. And we, we do know when Jesus uh, lived this life and, and dies and rises again, we see that he clearly is God's divine son. But if you come in from the Old Testament, as you would with Mark chapter 1, verse 1, you will see that the Son of God is also a, a title uh, given to someone in the Old Testament. It was also a way to describe God's king. Now, God had promised King David in the Old Testament that a descendant of his will be his son, right? Let me show you this famous prophecy. God says to David, I will be to him, your descendant, a father, and he will be to me, a son. Okay, a promise that one of David's children will be an eternal king of God. Now, Psalm 2, which uh, Steve wrote to us before, put these two things together, right? Let me read Psalm 2. It's a amazing psalm. There's also a prophecy right, about what God will do. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath 
and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So it's clear, isn't it? It's very clear that Mark is bringing together these prominent Old Testament terms, the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God, pregnant with meaning and with hope about what God will do. He brings them together and tells us that this new beginning is the message that Jesus is God's King, the King. Can you see it? Jesus is God's King, the King. That's what the title says, right? The beginning of this royal pronouncement that this man called Jesus is God's King, the King. Now, after verse 1, a lot of things happen, don't we? If you read verse, uh, from verse 2 onwards, you see that there is an Old Testament prophecy, right? Verse 2 and 3. Then there's this strange man baptizing in the wilderness, John the Baptist, right? From verse sort of 4 to 7. Then Jesus' baptism. And then Jesus out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. But it's clear when you get to verse 15 that it's all talking about one thing. And verse 15 tells us that, right? It's the announcement from Jesus himself. God's king, the king, that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's all one message about the king and his kingdom that has come. Now, let's go through these, right? Let's see, I want to show you from verse 2 to 13 how this is the case, right? Let's look at verse 2 and verse 3. It starts with a quote from the Old Testament, okay? A prophecy from two places, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. You can look it up yourself if you want to, Malachi 3, verse 1, combined with Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And Mark says it's from Isaiah because Isaiah is the more prominent prophet, okay? So they says, thus Isaiah says, prophecies that tell us that God's king will not turn up unannounced, okay? Now, no, no world leader of any kind, uh, of any note, would turn up unannounced, right? If you have a world leader, uh, you know, um, uh, Donald Trump or... or or the Chancellor of, Vice Chancellor of Germany, is that what she is? Merkel or someone is. Yeah, whatever. And, you know, anyone prominent in this world, no, if they go anywhere, they will always turn up announced, right? They will send an advance party to finalize the itinerary. They will organize all the security. They will do all the checks, right? And then before they arrive, uh, they will send, or as they arrive to the event, they will what, send off the police escort, and then there will be their own personal secret service or whatever it is. And then finally, sitting pretty in their armor-plated, bulletproof car, they will come chanting down the street, right, to whichever event they go to. You can't miss it. Um, it's a big fuss, isn't it? But hey, world leader, a big deal. Of course, they're going to come prepared. Everyone's going to know. Now, God's King Jesus likewise doesn't come unannounced, does he? However, it's not the showy preparation that our world leaders have. It's a very strange kind of preparation, right? A voice out in the wilderness. Now, what's that about? Right? Why, why wilderness? Why is it that the Lord, as he comes, comes out into the wilderness? So I'll see. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, all right. So um, why the wilderness, okay? So this is wilderness, just to get you in the mood, okay? The wilderness, if you were an Israelite, has both a literal and a symbolic place or significance for you. If you know your Testament, 
and you know your history, you know that the wilderness represents being lost. Many of you might know the story of the Exodus, where God rescued his people out of Egypt. And where did they spend 40 years because of their rebellion and their stubborn sinfulness? In the wilderness. And then later on, as they go on their second exodus, after the the nation of Israel and and Judah have crumbled in judgment under God because of their stubbornness and sinfulness, where did they go? In this symbolic place of wilderness as they were carted off to Assyria and to Babylon. And the prophets would use this wilderness imagery and language to describe how the people are, are, are lost in their stubborn sinfulness and in their rebellion and rejection of God. The wilderness is where lost sinners live. And it's where people need God to come to save them from. Right? In the Exodus, to save them from the wilderness into the promised land, from the wilderness of, of exile back into God's kingdom, into God's family. Now, what is being cried out in the wilderness? Right? Well, how do the people prepare? What is this messenger saying to prepare the people for the Lord's coming in this wilderness? Well, as we read on, we see that John the Baptist is this messenger, and he proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right? He proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The messenger prepares the people by preaching to the people of their sin. Not sending off, you know, uh, bodyguards ahead of them, or not sending off a big convoy, but a preacher to preach about people's sinfulness. For people to see their sin, to acknowledge it, to own it, and to grieve over it. So much so that people will want to get ready and want to cry out to the Lord to come and save them, right? I have children. Many of you were children. All of you were children. Some of you here have children. It's one of the most difficult things as parents, isn't it? To get your children to feel sorry for what they've done that is wrong. Correct? Lucas, hey, good, good job, Dan. Lucas was the most furious head nodder. It's so difficult for people to, for children especially, even adults, let's be honest, to admit that they've done something wrong against someone else or against you. But when they do... And to see the initiative of them coming towards you to ask for help, for forgiveness. That's what John's trying to do, right? Prepare people to want to receive God and his, and his salvation. And with it came this powerful symbol of baptism. A beautiful picture of, of, of being washed, of seeing a need to be washed and to come out fresh. But this baptism means nothing without the preaching that went with it. And so we see that when people came to be baptized, they confessed their sins. They, they acknowledged that they needed help, they needed saving. And so when they went through this baptism, they were actually preaching a message as well, weren't they? That I need God to save me from my sins. Now clearly, what, what, what Mark is saying here is that John is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about a messenger. And clearly, John is not the star of the show. He is the messenger, right? He's the background preparing for the star to arrive. But he prepares the people uh, to, to receive this. And he preaches this message of forgiveness of the coming king. Verse 7. John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, 
but he, the one who will come, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Imagine that, right? In this time, slaves would take their master's sandals off as they entered the house so they can wash their feet, right? You all know about the, the feet washing kind of traditions of the, old, of, of the old times? Well, the servants, the slaves, would stoop down and untie the sandals so they could wash it. But, but John is saying, so much greater is this king that is to come that I'm not even worthy to stoop down to untie his sandals to, to wash his feet. So much greater is this king, and so much greater is his baptism. John only makes people wet. He does. He only makes people wet. But Jesus will make people woke, right? which is kind of the new fancy way of saying, uh, be able to grasp God, to be able to comprehend God, to be able to be connected with God. John simply makes people wet, hopefully ready. But Jesus is who will wash us clean by the Spirit and will connect us to God by His Spirit. Now, there will be a lot more to say about this, okay, obviously, as we get on through Mark. But already, Mark is setting us up or John is setting us up to see Jesus properly, to see Jesus mightily as being the most significant person ever to have lived. For now, this is clear. Jesus is king, right? The voice in the wilderness proclaims it. Right? There's evidence number one that Jesus is God's king, the king. The voice in the wilderness proclaims it. Now, we move on to, to verse 9 to 11, and we, we see the baptism of Jesus. Right, compared to the other Gospels, Mark's is very short and very succinct. Right? There's basically only one point that he's trying to make. As Jesus comes out from the water, three things happen. Right? Have a look in verse 9 to 11. Three things happen. The first, the heavens were torn open. Number two, the Spirit of God descended on him, looking like a dove. And finally, the third thing, a voice proclaimed from the heavens, You are my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, can it be any clearer what Mark is trying to say here, right? Can it be any clearer what Mark is trying to say? There is a divine confirmation of Jesus' identity. Isn't it? These three things are trying to say very clearly who Jesus is. Right? The one who will baptize with the Spirit is shown to receive the Spirit. Now, let's not be mistaken, okay? A lot of people think, oh, Jesus didn't have the Spirit before this. How come he needed to receive the Spirit? No. This, this, this dove-like thing coming down on Jesus as the Spirit is not for Jesus' benefit, as if he didn't have the Spirit. It's for John's benefit. It's for those getting baptized in the Jordan's benefit. It's for our benefit. It's, it's for us to be able to visually see what Jesus already is, the one full of the Spirit. The voice from heaven declaring that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased isn't for Jesus' benefit. He knows who he is. It is for John's benefit. It is for those getting baptized by John in the Jordan's benefit. It is for our benefit to be able to see what? That Jesus is the Son, the King, and the voice from heaven proclaims it. And now, with this visible symbol, the Spirit dwelling on Jesus, and the Spirit already in Jesus, the Spirit drives him up into the next thing, right? Into the wilderness. It's that wilderness place again, right? Just to bring the picture up, get you back in the mind of wilderness. Can you see this wilderness theme kind of permeating through these 15 verses? Right? Remember the place of sin and lostness, the place where salvation is needed, the place where the messenger comes to prepare the people? Jesus is there in that place because John has prepared for his coming. 
And here we see the spiritual powers, they recognize Jesus. Satan himself comes to tempt Jesus. Now this account here, once again, is super short compared to Luke's gospel. Right, Luke has this whole conversation going on, you know, mention not little bread alone and blah, blah, blah. There's all these Old Testament stuff. But for Mark, one sentence and it's done, right? Because, as always, Mark's in a rush to get to the point. And the point is very clear, isn't it? Satan knows who Jesus is. That's all that he wants to say. Satan recognizes who Jesus is and he's threatened by who Jesus is. He wants to tempt Jesus away from his mission. Then Mark tells us about the wild animals. Now, is this a threatening picture, right? You know, is, is Jesus under threat by the wild animals? It's like, like Daniel, you know, Daniel, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Is it a threatening picture or, or is it something else? Now, I think it's not a threatening picture at all. If you know your Old Testament, if you know Isaiah, you see how Isaiah is a big part of Mark chapter 1, you will know all about this picture of salvation in the wilderness as the Lord God promises redemption and restoration, which are kind of great salvation words, he promises this, right? This passage in Isaiah 43, the Lord says, regarding salvation in this wilderness, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. And we did Isaiah last year. We looked at Isaiah this morning. It's, it's clear what God is saying here, isn't it? That he'll come into the wilderness and he'll, he'll bring us streams of living water. He'll bring life, restoration, salvation. And so we find here, quite amazingly, that Jesus is with the wild animals in the wilderness. And maybe he's being honored by them. Right? As the jackals and the ostriches uh, prophesied. And lastly but not leastly, we see the angels minister to Jesus. Because certainly the angels from heaven know who Jesus is. And so we see that Jesus is the king. The spiritual powers and the animal kingdom, they recognize it, don't they? Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has well and truly begun, hasn't it? We've looked at uh, about 13 verses so far, and what a start it has been for us to see Jesus, God's King, the King. As we look at these last two verses in verse uh, 14 and 15, it, it closes off uh, this section for us very, very neatly and very well and very powerfully. Right? The gospel is the royal proclamation about the King. Uh, and, and the King brings in the kingdom, right? his rule. Um, Jesus begins his ministry by proclaiming the gospel of God, right? verse 14 to 15, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is how Jesus concludes this beginning of his gospel. The time, right, the kairos in Greek is, is fulfilled, right? It's a new beginning. Now, I was listening to something really interesting on the radio the other day uh, about, um, about the way that Eastern people and Western people think about time, right, and what is the right time. Um, and it's very, very interesting, right? When you think about Western and Eastern views of time, um, it's very different. Um, when you think about a wedding, okay, when is the right time for it to start? The Western view of time is very specific. The invitation says 10 a.m. So that's when the wedding starts, right? Uh, and if you come after that, you're frowned upon, right? You're, you're late. But for the Eastern view of weddings, what's the right time? It's whenever the bride arrives, 
isn't it? It's not a specific, it's about relationships, right? Think about a Chinese New Year dinner, right? Tuan Yun Fan, okay? For Westerner, if they were to go to a big family dinner, it's whatever the invite says the time is, right? 7 p.m. If you arrive at 7.05, maybe half the food is gone, right? Because, uh, you know, the dinner started at 7. But what about for Chinese or Eastern people? Dinner starts when? The guest of honor arrives, right? So, you know, in your family, I see some elderly people here. If, if it's Uncle Boon Ching's family, no one will dare start dinner until Uncle Boon Ching, Auntie Elin arrives, right? Right? Davin, Kelvin, all, you know, they'll never dare start dinner until the guest of honor, the, 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 the most important relationship person arrives, okay? Now, you've got to remember that the, the Bible is Eastern. I'm not sure you know that, right? It's not a Christ, West, Christianity is not a Western religion. It, it began as an Eastern religion. And of course, it's now a, a universal religion. But we've got to understand time in an Eastern way. When, when, when the Bible says that the time is fulfilled, and you're asking what time is fulfilled, we're saying that the, 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 the most important person has arrived. Right? That the guest of honor has come. The time has arrived because the king has come. The time has come because the king has come. And when the king comes, his kingdom comes. When the king comes, his reign begins. It is the decisive moment in world history. It's so, it's the reason why whether people sign up to it or not, maybe God has done this in his sovereignty, that the world is defined by B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domini, and no BCE will ever change that. No BCE will ever change that. Now, so what, right? How do we respond to this? So what do we do when the king comes? What is the necessary response? What is the appropriate response? This is not just some theory or some principle. We're talking about reality here, right? What happens if, if Jesus really is God's king, the king, and he has come, then what is the necessary and what is the appropriate response? Now, at a wedding... When the bride arrives, the necessary and appropriate response is to stand up, isn't it? And maybe to throw your flowers and, and to, to get into the celebrations, to be a witness. When, when, when the guests of honor arrives at a, at a, at a Chinese New Year dinner, you, you begin feasting and you enjoy the celebrations, don't you? But what about when the king comes? What do you do when the king comes? Well, we don't have to wonder because the king tells us, doesn't he? Repent and believe. The only thing that's said to us for us to do in this passage, which is all about Jesus being the king, the king, is repent and believe. Two words that summarize the entirety of the necessary and the appropriate response to Jesus, God's king, the king, in response to his coming kingdom. And these two responses are really just one response, really. They're, they're connected. They, can, they can't really be separated. You can't have one without the other, right? But to repent is to make a decisive change, okay? It's to change your mind and to turn in your direction, right? That's what repent means. Metanoia is to change mind, but also to turn in your direction. To repent is to think differently and live differently, simply, right? Think differently and live differently. Repentance requires believing something that makes you change, it requires for you to believe the gospel message, right? That our thinking and our living was one way and it is to be another way. That's how you repent, right? You have a new belief and you have a belief about your old ways. 
What is our always? What is the belief we need to have that will cause us to repent? Well, we've already heard about that, right? We, 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 like all humanity, are wilderness people. We, like all humanity, are wilderness people. We are lost in our sin. We live for ourselves, or we live for the world. We live without God. We live without the desire or the possibility of honoring, truly and perfectly honoring God who created us and who loves us. The royal pronouncement of the gospel is that the Savior King has to come to save sinners like you and me. That's what the the gospel, that's what this royal news is about. It implies that we have a problem. And so the question is, what do we think of God's assessment of our spiritual state? Do we agree that we are wilderness people lost in sin and needing saving? Or do you find it really hard to think of yourself as a sinner who needs saving? Now, isn't this often the biggest obstacle for many who are figuring out if Jesus is someone they want to or should believe in? It's often the biggest obstacle, isn't it? If you've ever been involved in evangelism, one of the biggest sticking points, one of the biggest barriers is, I don't really see why I need saving, right? I'm not that bad of a person. Now, many of you, if you're not a believer, and many of our non-Christian family and friends are very nice and very good people, right? If we have a bell curve on humanity as to how nice and good people can be, most of our family and friends will be on the right side of the bell curve, right? Getting fours, fives, six, and sevens in life, okay? Maybe a few passes, but generally doing pretty well as nice people. By human standards, everyone seems all right. But what about by God's standards? What about by God's standards? You see, sin, first and foremost, is how we treat God. It's about how we treat God. And by God's standards, no one, not even one, is right with Him. That is the Bible's consistent message. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're investigating Christianity, I would really ask for you to take the time to really think about and learn about what sin is. Right? right? Not, not to have some preconceived idea of, of sin being you know, some kind of particular wickedness, but to really understand what Scriptures say sin is and why God would want to call you a sinner. Because if you don't fully grasp what sin really is, you will find it impossible to repent and believe in the gospel. If you don't really grasp what sin is, you will find it really hard to want to repent and believe in the gospel. But on the flip side, at the very moment in which you get down on your knees and your heart is crying in tears and pain and brokenness about the the sinfulness that God says that you are, the moment that you accept that and, and it impacts you, Repenting and belief is something you won't be able to wait to do. And in fact, in the midst of that tears and that brokenness, you will find joy like you've never experienced. It's funny, isn't it? You don't get sin. No point repenting and believing. But when you're floored by sin, you can't wait to repent and believe. It will be the most painful, but the best and most joyful thing that you'll ever do. Now, as for Christians... This is a, a, a proclamation, an application we have to make as well, right? To repent and believe. Because for Christians, even many of us find it hard to accept that our life is still full of sin. Some of us may be especially proud and especially stubborn in our sin. 
and find it hard to truly repent and believe in Jesus, in his gospel. And I think you know who you are. And I know, you know, we, we, we know the right things. We, we say the right things even, but there is no decisive change in our lives. We know that our thinking isn't truly transformed and that our believing is, is merely stuck in the intellectual often. Now, if you call yourself a Christian and take the time to really think and learn about your ongoing sinfulness, spend time in self-reflection, ask your leaders, ask your family, ask your friends to give you an honest appraisal of how you're walking with Jesus, whether you truly are genuinely repenting and believing in Him. You see, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. His arrival has changed the world forever. Even our calendars recognize this world history-making event. Now this Jesus, the King, the King has come. It's time to repent and believe. It's time to repent and believe. It's calling us to respond to the world-altering arrival of the King with a world-altering change in us. Jesus isn't there just trying to change the world out there. He's trying to change the world inside. Our own personal turning points. If you've seen this morning, you won't repent if you don't believe that the King has come to save sinners like you and me. And it'll be useless to repent unless Jesus really is the King who saves. And really, that's what the next 15 weeks, the next 16 chapters will be about. Learning more and more, savoring more and more. Who is this Jesus, the King the King who comes to save. So keep coming along. Keep reading and and, and meditating on, on the Gospel of Mark. And keep opening your eyes to who this Jesus is. And to ask yourself, will I continue or will I begin to repent and believe? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your amazing grace and mercy and love and within your sovereign power, you have worked in such a way as to prepare us for the coming of your King. That all through the Old Testament, you kept uh, showing your mercy and grace towards sinners who are so lost in wilderness, who are so rebellious, who were so consistent in rejecting you, whose soul did not deserve anything from you. Yet over and over again, you made promises and prophecies that you would send a Messiah, a Christ. You would send a king who will save. You will send a son, your very own son, your beloved son, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we thank you that 2,000 years ago, you fulfilled those promises and those prophecies by sending your son. We thank you that even in these uh, first 15 verses, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as we make so clear to us that Jesus has come, that Jesus is the King, that his kingdom has been established, and that his rule has begun. Please help us to see with our very own eyes. Please help us to grasp in the depths of our hearts that Jesus really is King. And in so doing, that that we might want to repent and believe that we might recognize our sinfulness before you, that we might see that Jesus is the saving king, that we want to turn away from our old way of life and turn to Jesus to believe him in who that he is and all that he's done. We thank you that this is just but the beginning, and we thank you that in the next 15 weeks we're able to dive deep 
into the things that your word has written about him. So please help us to see Jesus, to know him and to believe in him. For we pray in his precious name. Amen.